the most frequently asked question, I, I guess, when I'm speaking to investors with a blank piece of paper is, well, point me to one, is it loans, bonds, Europe, US, EM, high yields, high grade, you know, CLOs, where should I take my money? And the reality is, I think the evolving way that the markets offer returns is be as flexible as possible is going to be the best way to access these markets on a consistent way. Because I just described to you earlier how the bond market substantially outperformed the loan market, then the loan market substantially outperformed the bond market. And you could see that kind of return yo-yo, if you like, continuing because we are just in, in markets that are very headline driven, singular pieces of information do move not just singular names but also singular markets and so it's very difficult with sincerity to call out one market on behalf of investors and say that's it and it's certainly not a rational place still there's still going to be lots of speculation that's driving the propensity to be in one area or the other and i think both from a portfolio construction and a mandate perspective you are always better in this type of environment to have a flexible mandate That was Martin Horn, head of global public fixed income at Barings. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Barings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number three of season three of Streaming Income. Throughout the season, we'll be bringing you in-depth conversations with experts on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. On today's show, I spoke with Martin Horn, head of global public fixed income here at Barings. Based in London, Martin oversees the firm's cross-border fixed income teams, including high yield, structured credit, EM corporate, and more. In the conversation, we focused our attention on high-yield markets. Specifically, we talked about how high-yield markets have performed during the pandemic and what's been most surprising to Martin during that time. We also talked about where we go from here and how Martin and team are approaching an environment that still has much uncertainty, from the pandemic to economic growth to the political picture. And finally, we spoke with Martin about where he and the team are finding pockets of value in global credit markets today. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Martin Horn. All right, Martin Horn, welcome back to Streaming Income. Great to be back. Well, uh, where are you calling in from today? From the study in my house, which is pretty much where I've been working from since about March of this year, like many people. We, we do have our office open in London. I guess what's different between London and Charlotte, which is our other kind of major international office, is um, you have to commute into London on public transport, which makes it a little bit more uh, difficult in these COVID times. So uh, I'd say that most of our office is still um, working from home. Um, and um, I suspect that will be the situation until we get into uh, at least through Q1 next year. But let's see how we go. Yep, yep. Still, still at home here myself. Um, and when you and I spoke last on this podcast, it was back in late March, and it was basically right at the beginning of 
when COVID was really taking hold uh, in the West. And I don't think at that time you or I would have guessed we'd be sitting here in October having this conversation uh, remotely again, but, uh, but here we are. We had a lot of questions about, okay, what's the long-term impact on the economy of this pandemic? How are policymakers going to react? And then, of course, what would that all mean for um, high-yield investors? Uh, you know, at that time, also, you definitely suspected that the moves we were seeing at the time, which were quite extreme, would ultimately be uh, proved to be an overreaction uh, to some degree. So I guess, why don't we start there? Can you just catch us up on what's been happening over these last six, seven months in high-yield markets? How have they performed? And then what's, I guess, been most and least surprising to you? Yeah, I guess that that comment that I made back then about the market overreaction was not any sort of great visionary words. Um, it's pretty much our markets always overreact when there's a kind of dearth of information and a vacuum of knowledge about situations. And it's really vacuums of knowledge that cause financial market turbulence as much as anything. It's the unknown. It's what you can't price in. And if you can't price it in, markets will tend to capitulate. So obviously back then we had... Um, you know, the, the, certainly the credit and the high yield markets drew down to mid to high teens levels. And since then, we've seen something of an asset price recovery. I use my words carefully because it's been an asset price recovery rather than a risk rally, because um, you have seen some dispersion in terms of um, what's recovered the quickest. And it's basically by ratings category. And again, drawing us back to March you tend to find that when you get market capitulation, higher rated names will, will draw down less than lower rated names. And in the recovery, we've seen higher rated names recover quicker. So you've seen a, a marked outperformance of triple B and double B against single B and triple C. And you can pretty much see a kind of linear line um, uh, as to um, how that recovery has occurred um, between those asset categories. Um, my interpretation of that is whenever you see that, the market is still irrational because life is never like that, that there's a linear um, profile between a double B rated credit and a single B rated credit. There's lots of lots of idiosyncratic risk in our marketplace. Um, what you're just seeing, though, is is a reference to investors are getting more and more information on every month that goes by. Um, we went through the first stage of this pandemic, which was the severe lockdown stage that most jurisdictions experienced in some way, shape or form, which effectively caused large scale industry shutdowns. We're now in the kind of middle phase, um, which is, um, is, is still ongoing, which is a kind of semi-open state, or you could call it an open state, but with different consumer behavior and different consumer consumption patterns as a result. Um, and it's that phrase and it's, it's, that is providing our current vacuum of knowledge. I think as every month goes by, um, we get a little bit further down the roads to put in real analytics around this. And as soon as you put analytics around something, you can see um, market prices will recover in a much more prescriptive way, in an individual way, um, because people will really be able to have certainty around the conclusions that they're drawing. Um, and the key, you know, the near-term barometer for us is obviously vaccine news. If you get vaccines out, then the next stage of your analysis is, well, how long does it take for a vaccine to get dispersed through 
enough of the population that we all return to consumption patterns. We go back to cinemas. We go back to on cruise ships. You know, how long does that take? Um, and, and again, every phase that we see that that runway sort of unfold in front of us, we will be able to price in the risks that we're taking um, in a much more certain way. And I think then you will see risk rallies occur. Um, but I don't think vaccine news is necessarily going to trigger that because there will still be quite some uncertainty about rollout and how many jurisdictions will be able to get the kind of rollout um, in enough quantity and therefore how how quickly this global normalization returns. So asset price recovery, yes. Nowadays, um, most of the credit markets are in reasonable shape. You're looking at very low single-digit negative returns year to date. If you look at the U US high yield market index, you'll see it's down about 50 basis points. Um, European loans down about 75 basis points. US loans down about 83 basis points. You know, these are not big numbers really think about how much the world has changed in the last six months. Um, has it gone too far? No, I don't think so. I think actually there's lots of reasons to balance your viewpoint between the severely negative and the severely positive. And as ever, I'm somewhere in the middle. And I think there are definitely stories out there you want to back and definitely stories out there you want to avoid like the plague. Um, but Every quarter that goes by, I feel better about kind of being more prescriptive with clients. Um, and uh, I think the the opportunity set relative to everything else will present itself. Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting that you're describing it as opposed to a risk rally as a asset repricing. And I think your your points around how credits of of various uh, rating uh, quality have have kind of diverged in performance is is very interesting and. Um, you know, I was curious about the the performance of the bond and the loan market. It doesn't sound like it's been too terribly different. I guess you would imagine or expect that loans would be less volatile in theory. Um, how, how about issuance trends? I know there's been near record or record issuance in the U.S. bond market. What's going on with that? Is that something that uh, you're viewing as a positive or is that something that you're worried about? Yeah, and look, I'll just take you back to your first comment about the, the fact that they're not too different. It's more of a luck that, than, than judgment that that's the case because we're, we're speaking this week, frankly. Um, it's been very different um, uh, if you broke it down month by month or quarter by quarter even. And in the, the unstereotypically, because the Fed stepped in when it did um, and supported directly the bond market, you, you're normally absolutely right that the bond market generally draws down uh, more in line with the equity markets, which draw down the most. And the Fed came in and put money behind um, and supported uh, both an equity and a bond market rally. And the loans were slower to recover. So actually, in the early part of this crisis, it was almost a reversal of what we'd see as a market norm following a drawdown in that Loans actually drew down at least as much, if not slightly more, than the bonds in the in the in the extreme period, and they've recovered slower. But then in August, you almost got a sea change in perspective because I think we were we we were looking at the S and P and we were looking at um, the Nas and we were seeing this this great um, tech kind of orientated recovery in the equity markets, and there was a 
uh, an opening up of economies and you were seeing people in restaurants and bars again. And it's almost like the enthusiasm of the market followed that. And then in August, it's almost as though we realize actually this isn't going to be over quite as quickly as we thought. And uh, then the, the bond market performance started to trade down a little bit, not not significantly, not not certainly not in anything like um, we saw from um, March. But you did get um, loans then o- overtaking in terms of recovery, and they kind of settled in about the same place. Bizarrely, in the first couple of days of October, as we're sitting here today, um, that's reversed again, and now the bond market looks like it's catching some headwind or tailwinds rather and the loans are doing okay but they're lagging the bond market so you are seeing a differential between those asset classes in the performance there's different technical drivers there um and you know looking forwards one of the reasons why the bond market um underperformed slightly along with the kind of change in sentiment was also it saw some record levels of issuance and that's all time kind of record levels. So uh, when you think about the U.S. high yield market, um, 336 billion of issuance to date, which is uh, really staggering numbers, given where we were back in March. And you'd struggle to envisage that the markets would recover uh, so quickly. I guess my, my interpretation of that is you know, we're twofold. You saw different levels of issuance. You saw, first of all, companies really looking to shore up liquidity support. So coming out and tapping issues to try and um, get as much capital through the door because of this uncertainty. Then you saw some kind of vanilla refinancing. And now you're seeing more M&A activity in the marketplace, which, again, is is some reference point to the fact that at least at the capital markets level, um, there's been a normalization. All of those comments is a reflection of the U.S. market, I have to say, because um, you're seeing a very different picture in Europe where the European high market has not seen a huge amount of issuance. It's kind of uh, less than uh, 60 billion. Uh, so about a fifth of, of, of its U.S. counterparty. Um, low market new issuance has been barely visible. And um, in the U.S. loan market, actually, they've seen a decent amount of, um, you know, 200 billion or more um, year to date. So um, we we are seeing different reactions to all of this. Um, One interpretation is the Fed support and how dynamic it was and how much liquidity in the market. The fact that the U.S. markets are bigger and more robust is another. there was also a factor that um, there was a slightly higher leverage level in the U.S. markets. Um, and so some of those companies may have needed to go earlier for liquidity support, just given the debt burden that they were carrying. But, there's, you know, it's not one size fits all. There are different reasons why you're seeing these different patterns. It does mean the opportunity set amongst these markets is going to jump around a little bit. And I think you'll see that going forward, that you will see it. Uh, a movement of investor opportunities between these markets, depending on how the next six months rolls out. And there's still lots and lots of points of uh, potential volatility in the market, um, particularly as we sit here in October. Yeah, I mean, on that issuance, uh, as you mentioned, there, it looks like there's been record uh, issuance in the U.S. high yield market. I mean, some of the more interesting commentary I've seen is, has just noted the difference between gross uh, leverage and net leverage, you know, making the point that, okay, yes, a lot 
of capital has been raised, uh, to your point, for a variety of reasons. Um, but a lot of these companies have a lot of cash sitting on their balance sheet. And the question is more, how does that cash get used uh, ultimately, um, and which could have an Im- impact in, in, a, in a variety of different ways? I think that's right. And, and, and you know, we've seen real world examples of, of what's translated since March again in the sense that defaults have been a lot lower than than the market would have expected. And, um, uh, you know, when, when we talk back then, I think the published data was anywhere for annualized defaults for this year would be anywhere between seven and 25 percent of the market. And just um, 10 or 11 is, is, is a record level of default in any of the high yield market. Um, so 25 is just kind of off the chart. And it basically tells you when you see market predictions like that with that sort of dispersion between them, it's basically telling you that no one knows. You know, put a blindfold on, throw a dart at a dartboard, you'll probably get a better answer because people don't know what the, um, what the right number is. Um, now, as we sit here with uh, two or three months to go, at the end of the year, I think most people' expectations is it won't go much above five and and might be a bit lower than that. It doesn't mean that that's the end of the default cycle for this entire experience because I think you know we we can talk about you know how long into next year it's going to take for that normalization of consumption patterns and normalization of economic activity, and we can also talk about what the world looks like after that. Um, I would say to you that you know. The downgrade cycle wasn't as great as it was predicted. The default cycle has looked measured and there's been a responsible level of behavior, I think, between stakeholders from equity upwards, um, where we all recognize there is this bespoke situation that will have a beginning and an end. We don't know when the end is. We know when the beginning was. And people have shown a willingness to fund businesses through that crisis and at the other end, you are going to end up with some businesses with higher leverage points. And then it will be about the recovery. And I think most management teams that have been shoring up their balance sheet with liquidity will be looking to delever. And, and that's, again, going to, going to bring a different dynamic to how companies act, what CapEx trends will look like, what investment policies will look like, what M&A you might see. All of these will have knock-on implications for the financial markets um, uh, as we move into um, the end of this um, this particular uh, historic crisis. Okay, so let's talk about where all of this leaves us today. So I've heard you uh, recently quote the great Bon Jovi and say that we are halfway there, uh, maybe in terms of a variety of different things, whether we're talking political or stimulus or uh, vaccine expand on that kind of concept of being halfway there for me this halfway there concept i think it's it's sort of unarguable that we're not through this crisis right now that's a statement of obvious fact um uh, are we halfway we're probably halfway if you if you kind of line up most people's expectations we may be one third of the way there um if the end game is um, that no one needs to wear a mask on a plane anymore. So if that's the end game, um, uh, we, we are midway through. It means that you have to measure the way you invest on behalf of investors. And one of the investors asked me the other day, you know, um, 
because I was espousing the virtues of one of the more controversial sectors, say leisure parks. And they said, well, what if the vaccine isn't available by next summer to enough people? Do you lose? Are you making those sorts of one-way bets? And the answer is no. I think that's just foolish. Um, if you're going to get into um, controversial sectors which are going to offer you a lot of value, you really need to be um, either in a, a very good part of the capital structure um, and or backing into secured credit so that if option A is um, the company's got enough liquidity to see its way through this situation and um, we expect that a normalisation of trading levels by the end of 21 or, into, or, or early 22. Option B might be actually this is extended and you have to be prepared to, to step in own those businesses, provide liquidity support if necessary, and you do that most effectively through secured credit. And that's one of the advantages of secured credit. In effect, it gives you a second option in uncertain times. Your first option is you just invest, you get, you get your interest and you get repaid. Your second option is you end up owning the business and seeking your returns in a different direction. And where you're doing that, um, I would suggest in today's market, is that good businesses coming into COVID are likely to be good businesses with product offerings that clients want to partake in on the other side of this disruption. And what we're really talking about here is the ability for us to fund these businesses through this hump, get to the other side and see them flourish as good businesses again with product offerings that people want to buy and want to spend their money on. Um, and, you know, you can think of all the industries you're talking about, the cinemas, the, the, the cruise liners, the holiday parks, aerospace businesses. All of these companies have potentially great markets in five years time. And arguably they have in two or three years time people desperate to partake of their product because for the best part of a year, year or year and a half, they've been locked away and not able to do what they like to do go on holidays, go to the cinema, go to restaurants, go to bars, all of these things that in a normal way um, uh, we, we seek to do in our leisure hours. And, and really, um, I think that you have to invest today with eyes wide open because there is no certainty on when this thing will end. We have a decent reference point for where the market is indicating, but you have to have a second a plan, a plan B, if it extends, that means you can invest investors' money responsibly and know that you're not making a one-way bet based on imperfect knowledge. I think that's a really important point, especially because there are so many of these situations at a macro level that are seemingly so binary, right? So whether you're talking about the U.S. election, whether you're talking about the potential for you know more monetary and fiscal stimulus packages. You're talking about Brexit. You're talking about a vaccine, right? There's just so many things on the horizon that could go one way or another. And uh, so, I yeah, I'm happy that you brought that up because I was curious as to your approach around. Okay, well, how do you how do you invest through that? Like, are you know are you looking specifically for deeply discounted names in some of these more impacted sectors that you just mentioned? Or do you totally avoid those and, and, and try to stick with credits that are not impacted? Although I can imagine that's got to be pretty tricky to find credits like that. Um, so, so I'm happy that you brought that up and especially that point around secured credit 
Um, we've obviously got the global senior secured bond market, which is, has grown in size and a lot more issuance uh, has been seen in the U.S. market during this crisis of secured bonds. Obviously, we've got the loan market, which is a secured uh, asset class as well. What about when you think about uh, credit ratings in this context? I mean, uh, I'm curious how you and the team are thinking about that. So are you more comfortable, you know, looking at a deeply discounted single B or would your preference generally be for a, a double B that maybe you don't get as much spread, but, you know, maybe you're less impacted by some of these macro issues I just mentioned? See, I'm glad you asked that because I gave uh, an interview uh, recently. I, I went into some of these themes and of course, the uh, the the headline that came out because you don't get to sort of dictate what the headline is was horn backs cruise liners and uh, leisure parks and of course that's not what you build a portfolio around to answer your question you build a balanced portfolio that represents the uncertainty in the market that you see in front of you so you do want to put a small proportion of your assets into these high yielding opportunities which might be triple c or single b um, that are going to really drive that inflection point. But you do it in really good companies. And the principle is, if they were good companies coming into this um, with a really good product pr- proposition, they'd be good companies coming out of this. And maybe I'll have to fund a bit on the way, but there's really high levels of return associated with those types of conviction ideas. Um, you're also building a portfolio with diversity to represent the fact that there will be bumps along the right way if you build diversity into your portfolio, which is anchored by the more defensive sectors, so you think about the healthcare's and the tech and the, the telecoms uh, type sectors, non-COVID, let's call them, because these these things won't, won't let you down and will give uh, an anchor to the volatility perspective um, that you know still exists in the market. You know, we, we talk about volatility today, um, you're right. We're sitting here in October, presidential elections, your president's uh, health and wellness. We've got uh, Brexit negotiations. We've got um, stimulus packages uh, that may or may not arrive. Um, uh, we've got second lockdowns occurring and, and virus numbers um, increasing as we as the Northern Hemisphere comes into the winter months. So all of this means that You're getting very, very different uh, points of volatility. And I should also mention, because we haven't, you know, to date, that we haven't kind of focused on the EM market and EM corporate debt, which has been positive. You know, I I mentioned most of the the debt markets are negative, but you've had um, EM Corp deliver um, a decently positive return uh, year to date. And many of the jurisdictions are there are not experiencing the sort of um, disruption that we're seeing in the more developed markets. There was a stat quoted to me, and I it's not my stat, so just take it for what it is, but there was something like a 1,000 cases in the entire Pacific Rim, including Australia and New Zealand, in a singular day, which compares to tens of thousands in a single Western European or US perspective. So um, there's very, very different conditions lots of points of volatility. One of the way you build a portfolio is by having um, a good yield profile with conviction names um, uh, that is going to mean your clients ultimately will benefit from uh, excessive market returns. 
but with a balance between the higher rated and the lower rated to ensure that actually if you do get those surprises, those left field points of information that, that will undoubtedly exist well into next year, that you, your portfolio is robust enough that your clients really shouldn't have their capital at risk, particularly with an orientation towards secure credit. Yeah, I guess EM debt performance overall this year has been probably one of the real standouts. And uh, yeah, to your point, I mean, I guess when you think about emerging markets, it's hard to group them all together, right? So you have some places that are that are getting hit hard by COVID, others, you know, not so much. But the asset class has done really well. Obviously, EM corporate debt, a lot of these are big global companies. A lot of them earn a lot of their revenues and profits from developed markets, but maybe they trade a, a discount because they're punished for the jurisdiction that they sit in. So interesting to see that asset class do well um, this year. You kind of alluded to the most frequently asked question, I, I guess, when I'm, I'm speaking to investors with a blank piece of paper is, well, okay, point me at one. Is it loans, bonds, Europe, US, EM, high yields, high grade? you know, CLOs, where should I take my money? And the reality is I think the evolving way that the markets offer um, returns is be as flexible as possible is going to be the best way to access these markets on a consistent way. Um, Because I just described to you earlier how the bond market substantially outperformed the loan market, then the loan market substantially outperformed the bond market. And you could see that kind of return yo-yo, if you like, continuing because we are just in in markets that are very headline driven singular pieces of information do move not just singular names but also singular markets and so um it's very difficult with sincerity to call out one market on behalf of investors and say that's it and and it's certainly not a rational place still there's there's still going to be lots of speculation that's driving the uh, the propensity to be in one area or the other and I think both from a portfolio construction and a mandate perspective, you are always better in this type of environment to have um, flexible mandates. Unless, of course, you're trying to counter one sort of liability set, because we do have clients with, you know, certain liabilities and they, and they just need to match them with an income stream. Um, but outside of that, if, if, if I had no constraints, flexible mandates would be, um, the way that I would see is, is most appropriate for, for this type of headline-driven world. Yeah, well, one of, one of the points that was brought up on one of our internal calls in the last day or two is that a lot of these risks or those, these macro uh, headwinds that we're talking about are, in theory, short-term, right? Whether you're talking about U.S. election, stimulus package, you know, even vaccine. Like, a lot of that stuff, in theory, you look six months down the road, could be, you know, we could be in a lot better place, in theory. There's lots of things that could disrupt the market. I don't think then, though, we're talking about just disrupting the high yield or the credit markets. It will disrupt all markets. And they're the big headlines that you're, you're well familiar with. So your bare case is, is that there's more disruption on the way, that vaccines take longer, that we all feel um, worse about the world, that this extends well into next year. That's the obvious bare case. I, I'd say that's also the opportunity set because at that point, you're going to get an indiscriminate pricing environment. You know, we always say to investors, your best opportunity set is during just the aftermath of big drawdown. So the April, May's of this year, if you had um, capital to deploy, 
you could have deployed it really, really well, really well um, in in assets. But it is not an a- ever right now and um, for the foreseeable future a market that you should just index track because there is huge dispersion between what you might get in different sectors and different stories and you have to select and um, you have to be a bit patient because there are some really good businesses that you can pick up at huge prices but will they rally next week the week after the month after no actually some of them are going to take until you you've got really real transparency over what the end of the covid disruption looks like so there we're really talking about not just the vaccine announcement although i'm sure some of their asset pricing will get a bump on that on that announcement or subsequent announcements from various parties but you really um to to to, to map out the the liquidity runway you really have to see your way through to some certainty about the kind of the resumption of normal business operations. By normal, I don't mean what we've seen with this kind of halfway house. I, I mean the kind of full 2019 context of the world. Um, so don't be an index tracker. They, they just don't work during this time. They, they definitely don't work because, I, you know, the markets are going to be Different markets are going to have different stimulus, different technical pressures, different technical fillets at different times. So all of that means, look, recognize what you don't know. And we know a lot more today than we knew six months ago. And in six months more time, we'll know a lot more again. Um, but there's still plenty of different routes and trajectories that the uh, the landscape um, could take as we go into 2021. Have that flexibility of approach if you can. Definitely be an asset selector um, because it is not the time to just take holistic views. It's not a holistic market. It's going to give you very different outcomes depending on uh, your approach. All right. Words of wisdom there. Uh, I appreciate that. And I appreciate uh, you taking us through all this today and catching us up on what's been going on in the high yield market and, and giving us a little bit of a window into how you and the team are thinking about navigating what's ahead. So there's certainly no shortage of, of things to follow. And, uh, you know, I look forward to getting you back on the podcast at some point in the near future to, uh, to see how some of this stuff turns out. But uh, Martin, thanks. Thanks so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to episode three of season three of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you are the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.